Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This variant is insubordinate, stubborn, unpredictable. You name the god of mischief. Just death, destruction, the literal ends of worlds. Change. Change. Maybe Loki wants to mix it up. Is that possible? You can change. I am Loki, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. Hello and welcome to episode three of Still Watching Loki. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us on Still Watching for the first time, what Richard and I like to do with our free time is pick a, pick a show that we're watching kind of closely, a little obsessively, and talk about it week by week, break it down, read some of your emails, um, and, and get and get really into it. And it's it's been a fun way to watch television for the last couple of years with you, Richard, and, and a fun way to involve a bunch of our listeners in, in that process as well um, yeah we were just talking about it on cape cod weren't we we were oh i saw richard <laughs> on the cape <laughs> when, when richard and i did genuinely meet on cape cod and he's like we have to bring it up in the most obnoxious way possible so mission we accomplished had, had richard. cocktails looking out of the water it was fabulous <laughs> it was fabulous uh yeah so uh i am still on the cape coming to you live from the cape richard is back home uh so here we are talking about episode three lamentous uh We've got a couple extra things on this podcast, of course, this week. We've got our uh, colleague Anthony Bresnikin will come in sort of the back half of the show to get kind of nerdier, grant more more comic book granular with me uh, about some things. Uh, also, I think we're actually going to get kind of biblical this week. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if Anthony agrees with me, but I think we are. Um, and then uh, also we've got a, a lovely chat with the uh, great Wumi Misako, who plays uh, Agent uh, B. 15 i believe it is let me not get that wrong while she's on the podcast anyway um yeah b15 uh 
so yeah, she she was great, and she brought up some of these like theological questions. So that was really interesting, and and obviously there's a lot she can't say. And and I had that chat with her before I saw this episode. So when I asked her how old she was, her character was, and she said timeless. <laughs> it was like mm-hmm. there was a, it was an interesting little skirt of some things that we learned this week. So we're gonna get into all of that and your emails. Uh, usually we sort of start the episode with the emails, but we're gonna. We're going to drop them down sort of towards the end of our, our chat here, Richard. Um, but folks can always email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Got some great stuff this week to talk about. Um, so let us start. I'm going to start actually with one quick correction. I think last week, both on the podcast and in an article that I wrote on VF.com, uh, I thought, for some reason, I thought Sofia Martino sounded American when she said, this isn't about you. Um which was her only line, I think, <laughs> in uh, in last week's episode. And a bunch of people wrote in and said, duh, she sounds British. Uh, she is, of course, uh, mm-hmm. British in this episode. So that was my fault. Um, okay, but we are going to start with this concept of a filler episode, which is sort of an accusation that I've seen flung at this episode of um, Loki, wherein we have a very simple premise, which is like two people need to accomplish two things, either get a charge on the time pad or get a ride off this planet that's destroying. And it's mostly a walk and talk, a uh, long conversation episode and a bunch of uh, folks primarily <laughs> from what I've seen on Reddit are calling into filler episode in a negative way. Mm. And I was wondering, Richard, sort of what you thought of the description of a filler episode and, and whether or not you feel like it qualifies here. Well, I mean, I think, yes, it could qualify for some, uh, you know, reasons. Um, I thought it was a really great episode. I really liked it. But I loved it. Yeah, yeah. Even, even, um, but even if, I think those two things are not mutually exclusive. You know, like, I'm, I, maybe I like quote unquote filler episodes. You know, I like it when a show lets us see kind of just two characters interacting for a while while doing some kind of little side quest, you know, sort of thing. I think that's really fun. And, actually kind of engages me more in the world than does for you know just more exposition more development of plot you know i think as we have you know as our consumption of television has sort of changed over the past you know 10 years or so with streaming and condensed seasons and all that i i think that we just are trained a little bit differently to in how to watch things and i think that this episode felt like more of a kind of old school thing. And we were talking a little bit uh, before we started recording about that. Um, you brought up an episode of Lost, right? That kind of applies to this. Yeah. Uh, Trisha Tanaka is dead is one of my favorite episodes of Lost. And really all that happens in that episode is like the gang gets an old VW van working and it's just a pure character episode. Um, but something that you and I were talking about sort of before we started recording was this idea that like in those seasons of Lost, um, and this is something that Alan Seppenwall brought up to me, uh, so I want to give him that credit. Like, in those seasons of Lost, which were 20-plus episodes long, you had room for to, to take a pause and do an episode like this. I feel, for what I want from television, I feel you can do that in a six-episode season as well. But I understand that the stakes feel different for some viewers. Um, another great example, I think, of an episode that could be called a filler episode is this... Uh, from Avatar The Last Airbender, Tales from Bossing Say, which is just uh, like little vignettes, but it but it has one of the most beloved and emotional 
storylines ever, um, which is Uncle Iroh sort of mourning the loss of his son and stuff like that. So I just, I think those episodes that are just really centered on two characters or one character or whatever, connecting, deepening our understanding of them, deepening their connection, I think that's vital for me caring about an episode. Uh, or a series, yeah, uh, you know, and, overall, yeah. And I think in finding out more about Sylvie's character, we actually found out a lot more about the whole world of the show, and it did, I think, push us forward into a new understanding of what's happening. You know, the crucial line about like, oh, the the TVA soldiers are variants; they were they were people. I mean, we have this flashback in the beginning or whatever, you know, kind of mind reverie right. with Sasha Lane's character. And she, and later on, Sylvia says, "From hundreds of years ago, right? You know, and and but they're in like a, a contemporary looking bar drinking margaritas, you know. So we're, we're we're getting a sense of like how time is working in that regard. And you know, I, I, I don't know that that feels like really crucial to to how we grapple with what this show is like more largely about. So you know, there were there were other things too. I thought that really, um, you know, Sylvia saying." I've been running from them my whole life or something, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So like, so like they have a, they, they have a more, um, even more aggressive presence in the multiverse or whatever than we've seen in this sh version of things, which is actually pretty aggressive. Um, one thing I did want to bring up just to, just to get out of the way though, is yeah. so lamentous, this, this dying planet that they're on. Yeah. That's an obvious reference to melancholia, right? Oh, could the, be the, the Lars von Trier <laughs> movie. So melancholia is about Earth, but there's a planet called melancholia that's about to crash into Earth and end life as we know it, and um, or all life. Um, and it's a really interesting kind of <laughs> allegory about depression. So I'm just having like a, a thing about a planet crashing into another planet or a it's moon called or, lamentous. It's lamentous. Yeah. That has to be a reference. To that uh, I'm uh, assuming that sounds that sounds uh, right to me. I'll ask uh, our interview for next week is Kate Heron, and I'll make sure to ask her if that oh, was good. a melancholia yeah, reference. I'm curious. Um, yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, yeah, it, I guess I guess my issue is that the 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 phrase filler episode is often used pejorative, almost exclusively used pejoratively, and um, I don't mind describing this as an episode where very few plot things happen, even though we do discover, as you say, things about the world. Um, I just want a phrase for it that isn't like <laughs> so dismissive, like you don't need it's inessential. I'm like, I think this is, I would argue this is very essential because mm -hmm. this is doing something that we were begging Falcon and the Winter Soldier to do, which is like, take a breath and develop these characters and develop these interactions in a way that, that makes, that we can grapple onto emotionally. You know what I mean? Like, this was a criticism I think we had, um, you know, with like the, the, the terrorist organization and Falcon Winter Soldier, like, we were just like, what? slow down and mm -hmm. tell me why I should care about these people, the flag smashers, like really show me. And like this episode is really making a case for why I should care about who Sylvie is and why I should care about her dynamic with Loki. And that I think will pay off. And something, you know, for those who are needing more action, more plot, more answers to mysteries, all that sort of stuff, uh, for what is worth, Tom Hiddleston says the show really ramps up in episode four and five. So if you need that shot in the arm of adrenaline, Apparently, it's coming the next two episodes. But I will argue that when those two episodes come, they will be better television for having this episode here. So yeah, yeah. and also there were fights, and there's a planet dying. Like it was, <laughs> there was plenty of action. I also think you know, if you know, 
when we talk about Marvel shows and the sort of dominance of Marvel in cinema, now television, culture, and, you know, sort of expecting a certain formula to them, this is maybe kind of setting a low bar. But I think when an episode like this just gives us a different shape than we're used to, it starts to feel like artistry. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, this is actually like, there, it's a confidence in like the the world they're creating, um, a, a, that they can kind of just you know explore it and it and it feels nicely different. I mean, I suppose the Mandalorian is doing um has done similar kind of standoff episodes. A lot of them are sort of standalone rather. Yeah. Um, and I, I it's just it's a more it's a more comforting shape, I guess, maybe because of my age or whatever. But like, um, it also felt really creatively assured in a way that um other things like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but plenty else out there in, in the Marvelverse doesn't, you know, it feels entertaining, but not, um, doesn't have that extra level. And I thought this episode really did. This is, a, and, and, you know, to be fair to folks who felt like a little surprised by the, the pace of this episode, I felt like I was eagerly anticipating this episode ever since our Michael Waldron interview, where he referenced, before sunrise um as yeah. as like one of his references and i was like oh my god and i knew i knew that like a female version of loki was going to be in the series that was like that was kind of known out there and so i was like if we get a sort of walk and talk episode with just Lo- Lo- loki and lady loki uh before sunrise style i will be thrilled and that's of course exactly what this is with the train and everything um this is the before sunrise episode and like i'm delighted by it um so, you know, th- that that is definitely the vibe they were going for. And I, I definitely think uh, mission accomplished. And I think this this like simple propulsive purpose of like we need to get a charge or we need to get off the planet is is a nice shape to give. They're not just like sitting in a room. They're moving constantly, but they're talking as they're going, you know. And and what, you know, makes the, the I mean, all three of the before movies are terrific. But mm-hmm. um, what makes Before Sunrise so partly so compelling and poignant is that this is, you know, especially in Jesse, Ethan Hawke's character's case, like he is kind of lost in a vastness, this American guy traveling through Europe alone and meets someone who is a little bit more familiar with her surroundings, but also is kind of on her own weird solo journey and they're passing each other in the night and onto their separate lives, which later of course become intertwined more. Um, and and just that that sort of brief moment of connection and here we have that same thing happening where loki and sylvie are lost in a really really huge temporal vastness and she has lived many 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 you know more experiences than he has but he also he has done stuff that she hasn't and they're both kind of timeless but finding themselves in these few sort of nexus points um, passing through this catastrophic thing for so many living beings, but it's not as significant to them. I just think there's something really resonant about yeah. that kind of um, a, a particular pinpoint moment in a vastness. I think that's it, it, when it's well done. I think it's really effective, and I think it's well done here. I um, I'm also reminded of you know we keep mentioning Doctor Who because. Uh, listeners are eagerly awaiting your journey through the universe. No pressure. I know, I know you're going to take your time through it. But my favorite episode of Doctor Who, um, which is not, a, a, I think, a, a common choice for favorite episodes of Doctor Who, but it's an episode called Midnight, which I think is from season three. Um, and it just takes place on a train. 
uh, going through uh, an alien planet, and it's just the Doctor. It's sort of like an Agatha Christie, almost like whatever on a, on a train. But it's it's a very creepy character piece on a train with David Tennant's Doctor. He doesn't have his companion, and he's just going through. And there's some shots in this episode. I, I, I saw a lot of people say they this has felt like a Doctor Who episode to them. Um, I think it feels a little bit even more elevated than a Doctor Who. Like it, felt, it feels like a to me, it feels like a great episode of Doctor Who, which is not you know uh, not every episode of Doctor Who. And um, and so I, yeah, I was reminded of that. And then also I was reminded of um, you know Walter had brought up Mad Men as his favorite show, and I think he's very conscious of like wanting this to be as close to Mad Men as he can in a Marvel universe as he's writing the show. This reminded me of the suitcase a little mm-hmm. bit, which is a, a very famous episode of Mad Men where um, two characters are sort of, you know, bottle episode up together trying to crack an advertising campaign. But it's all this other stuff comes out in, in the course of it. Um, but when when Loki was giving his love as a dagger pitch, it felt very Don Draper to yeah, me. Like, you know what I mean? Carousel, like, yeah, yeah, the carousel. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's what the temp pad is for. <laughs> Um, yeah, so those are just some, some other references, but I think the big one and one that, one that no one who is working on this show had, had mentioned previously. And I think for good reason, because it would give some of the game away, uh, is Westworld. If these TVA agents, Sasha Lane's character, uh, C20, B15, Mobius, if they are all people who have had their memories wiped and are working for the TVA, then there is this idea of like, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Mm-hmm. This idea of waking them up, uh, which is something that like, you know, we saw a bit in WandaVision too with the town folk and Vision being able to like sort of wake people up and stuff like that. But like, but even more, I think this idea of, especially since we're talking so much about free will, mm-hmm. uh, I think Westworld's a good analog. What do you, what do you think of this revelation that the, that the TVA agents are, are variants? Well, I think, the other thing about the Westworld thing is that, you know, at least for its first two seasons, it was sort of a parable of consent. And uh, if someone like the TVA is violating that consent in some way, unless this is like a volunteer thing where they said, yes, please erase my memories, then that's a little bit of a different story. But like it, 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 it goes further to kind of highlight them as sinister, yeah. um, much as in a way that Sylvie kind of offhandedly saying I've been running for them my whole life. Which is like, well, why is she? I mean, I guess she's like the errant variant that they've been trying to snuff out or whatever. But um, yeah, I think the the Westworld thing is interesting. It it definitely if if these TVA employees, if we want to call them that, um, are not kind of created out of whole cloth, then it puts, I guess, kind of puts some limits on what the, the you know the timekeeper, whatever people can can do. They're doing more of a sort of mind magic trick that Sylvie's doing, not actually just like creating beings for a sort of single, you know, yeah. purpose. Um, so I think it's kind of both clarifying maybe their sort of the, the, the moral stance of the group, but also uh, the limits of their abilities. I should say, and, and I want to give credit for this, this idea that the TVA agents were variants who had had their memories wipes was bouncing around. Um, the internet. We did not bring it up on this show, um, but we got a couple emails about it. Brian from Pop Culture Leftovers Podcast emailed us about it. Daniel Silva emails it. Like, we got a, a 
couple of people saying like, what if the TVA agents are variants who have had their memories wiped? And I think a big clue last week that I kind of missed was this idea that uh, in her ramblings, Sasha Lane's character C20 said, uh, it's true. I want to go home. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which very much sort of underlines that whole like, this is not a, a consent. Uh, you know, this idea that like, okay, if we go back to what we learned in episode one, Loki is pulled out of a branch of time that he created that was then pruned. So it doesn't exist. And he has nowhere to go back to because the main, the sacred timeline with his character and everything that he's done through the MCU exists. So there's no room for this Loki. And so they're just saying, you know, and, and I think we thought, well, that means they'll just evaporate him. But what it seems to mean is that means they'll just enslave him or other people like him. And they'll just wipe him and use him as labor. Um, and yeah. there's no trace of this sort of slave trade because they've wiped, you know, those branching realities out of existence. Um, so, so what you're just, saying yeah. is that, that the timekeepers are building an old West town. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the idea of loops like Mobius yeah. means like a loop, you know what I mean? And yeah. like when yeah. he was in uh, Renslayer's office, last week, I was really preoccupied with this last week. I think I bothered Anthony with it more than I bothered you. But this idea that like he's talking about like these other rings on the table that he didn't make or who are her other agents who bring her things and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like one option is that there are a bunch of Mobius variants running around you know, there's like a bunch of different Owen Wilsons, but another option is like they have to continually wipe their memory, maybe. And right. so maybe he made those rings on the table. He just doesn't remember doing that because they have to constantly wipe him. You know, And their constant management of these timelines and variants may be to just find variants to enslave, basically. I mean, like, uh, yeah, like there, there, it, there's like a, a sort of industry there in a, in a you know, very um, obvious parallel to the you know Atlantic slave trade or something, right? Um, which would be an interestingly um, dark way to go with things, but um, but I could see it. I mean, you know, um, there certainly are the episode. I think in in pushing the narrative along, you know, with the Sylvie stuff, like really does you know clarify her as not the an outright villain, but actually maybe someone on kind of a noble mission, depending on you know. We don't know what her end goals are, but she's, you know, look, they're both kind of cavalier about the fact that, like, everyone around them on Lamentis is going to die, and they don't really, you know, that's like, oh, well, it's, it was going to happen anyway. Right. Um, she also but, keeps, like, killing brainwashed yeah. variants. <laughs> like, oh, like right. I'm like, I'm like, Sylvie, I, I want to root for you, but you keep murdering the timekeepers, and if the timekeepers are just, like, enslaved brainwashed variants i have i have a little uh difficulty with that you know? and yet there was a little humanity expressed when talking about like how she got in c20's mind and she because she you know that that young she said that that young soldier or whatever she, you know whatever term she used to describe her but like yeah she liked margaritas and there's a certain kind of affection in the kind of in the ruse and yes it's all deceptive and all you know all that but like I don't know. I feel like there was some still some glimmer of like this shouldn't be happening to these people. I will knock them down if I have to to kind of fix the bigger thing or or you know fight against the bigger thing. But right, there was still a little bit of compassion there. I think I want to talk about the margaritas actually really quickly because I think this you know we we have uh, Sylvie in this episode telling Loki how it is she does what she does uh, in terms of like putting C twenty in those 
bars and sort of kind of waking her up and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and, and we know that like margaritas were sort of, <laughs> I'm using a Westworld term, but like a cornerstone memory for her, right? Like this thing that she loved, this human thing that she loved. And of course we know the human thing that Mobius loves. It's the jet skis. So like, my question is, are we going to see Loki try to like wake Mobius up uh, or get in his head or whatever by like giving him a jet ski memory? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't like, I'm trying to figure out a way that that could happen where it wouldn't look goofy, but it seems really clear that Mobius, if he is a brainwash variant was plucked out of the nineties, given his taste for nineties era, Jostacola and his obsession with, uh, with jet skis, like that, that's, this, the origin of this uh, particular person. And I can see, like, I, I can't, I can't think of another reason why Sylvie would explain to Loki how to do it in this episode, if we weren't then going to see Loki do it in a later episode. Do you know what I mean? For sure. And, you know, Hiddleston did say that the action is going to be ramping up in four and five. So like, what's more action packed than jet skiing? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm excited. <laughs> but I also think that like what it, 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 it's drawing a par- Sylvie explaining it is drawing a parallel to perhaps what the timekeepers are doing. And maybe even is suggesting that, that Sylvie was one of these brainwashed um, employees uh, or slaves um, for some amount of time uh, and now is using their own tricks against them. She could, she could have been I, like my question about Sylvie and this, like, you know, she's been running from them for a long time. This plan she has in motion is in multi, multiple years in the works. It's surprising to me that she didn't know her magic wouldn't work there. You know what I mean? She shows up there and then she right. tries to use her magic immediately and it doesn't work. And I'm like, Sylvie, your recon is a little faulty, my friend. If you didn't know this this very basic thing about the TVA that your magic doesn't work there. I mean, she recovered quickly, but um, I have some questions about that. Um, I want to get into the Sylvie of it all, obviously. This is like the big Sylvie episode. But um, I, I guess the thing we have to acknowledge... Uh, that we have to be wary of as alert TV watchers is given what we saw at the beginning of this episode with, with C20 and Sylvie in these various bars. I think we now have to be wary about whether or not we're ever watching an illusion or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is a non-zero possibility that at some point in this episode, we actually fell into an illusion that Sylvie created or one that Loki pulled on her. I don't think that's what we're watching. It doesn't make a lot of narrative sense to me. But like at any given point, um, we could be sucked inside someone's head without really knowing that that's where we are. Do you know? So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We should be conscious of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing, one thing that uh, you know, longtime Loki fans pointed out is it was very weird in that one shot as they were running, trying to run to catch the arc. Loki stops a building with like just his hands, which is like telekinesis. It's just not really a a power he's had uh, in the MCU, though we did see him use it in the Rock's Cart fight last week. So I feel like it's it's a power they decided to give him here in his own Disney Plus show. He leveled up <laughs> now. Now mm-hmm. he can do sort of telekinesis, but that's a new thing. Um, all right, Richard, do you want to like go through like what we learned about about Sylvie and and what stood out to you and uh, all the things um, that we learned? uh yeah i mean i think that the name thing not wanting to be called loki um suggests maybe a tortured past with that name maybe something to do with the fact that she didn't meet her version of mom you know um it seems like there was obviously a more traumatic childhood than than loki who was very spoiled and kind of esteemed in, in his own way uh had um 
We mentioned that she's been running away from for a long time. There was a discussion of sexuality uh, in the episode. Um, she kind of teased Loki about it, but sort of referenced her own, I don't know, pansexuality, maybe? Yeah. Seemed like it. Bi or pan, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that she, she taught herself magic, which, I, which we are kind of talked about already, but I think that that is interesting in that, like, it 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 further kind of draws the differences between her and our version of Loki that like the same core being, I guess it, it could have such a vastly different experience. Like, I guess it's, it's just saying like how different these timelines can be, um, which I think is interesting and then probably how similar they could be too. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'll be curious to see more of, of that kind of development. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I thought that this was such a fun character episode for her. I thought Sophia DiMartino was amazing. Yeah. You know, as this kind of like journey woman, British TV actor and, you know, probably theater too, um, just to get, like get this big role and, and just nail it in this episode so well. I mean, she immediately became like one of the, you know, she's a great new character to this whole, you know, Megilla, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. who I'm I'm happy to have around. And I th- my, my guess is, given that she and Hiddleston have such winning chemistry, that they'll keep her around, that she's not going to go away. Although, I guess, Loki's dead in our version of things, but maybe we're get- maybe this is Marvel kind of being like, eh, never mind, like, reset the whole thing, because we can, because of time. We're the, we're the, Marvel is the timekeepers, Joanna. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Um, yeah, it's, um... I think there it what's what's interesting is something that I had like been speculating about was this idea that like um if if Loki met a female version of himself he might kind of fall in love with her because like Loki's the kind of person who would fall in love with himself. And I definitely think that Hiddleston and DiMartino were playing this as as not something like uh romance or sexual tension free between these two characters you know what i mean and i think some people were a little weirded out by that but i just am not because i don't i don't know i don't the way like the way the variants work and uh the fact that she had like such a different upbringing like she just seems so different from him i don't think it's it would be weird for these two characters to have that kind of like spark of a relationship i don't know yeah um, i yeah. and i think that there is something you know marvel doesn't do a lot of transgressive stuff but the sort of kinkiness of their obvious, like, you know, I, I it, it kind of was like two fastbenders kissing in yeah. um, Alien Covenant, you know, <laughs> yeah, where it was like, yeah, yeah. this is wrong, but it's kind of also like thrilling because it, we don't, this is not shown on, <laughs> in mass media very often. Uh, not that it needs to, I mean, inherently it's probably not a good idea, but um, I don't know. I just thought that was like a fun bit of, um, of taboo flouting, I guess. Yeah, and I, I had asked Hiddleston when, when we had him on the podcast about sort of like, because Loki and you and I discussed this, Loki is can- canonically bisexual or pansexual. And like, um, you know, I had asked him like what the show planned to do in terms of exploring that. And he said, you know, I'm like, I'm really, it was important to me that this be an aspect. And I don't know if just this nod here, this acknowledgement uh, is is the length and breadth of, of that engagement. But, it, you know, at least it is acknowledged so there you go um even if it's acknowledged within the context of this like hetero flirtation i don't know um the the thing that interests me most about sylvie um is i would like to know who raised her 
and why she's so uh disgusted by the idea of being called loki um yeah yeah i ha- i have some thoughts and theories i don't know if you want to hear them but like i yeah uh, well give me give me the give me the the amuse bouche before i'm sure you and anthony <laughs> will go into this deep more deeply but i'm wondering so i think i've mentioned to you before that richard e grant is in this show and they have not said who he's playing but like i feel like he's playing an older loki he no, like, he played the the moon crashing into the planet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah, that's right. Um, and so I'm like, well, what if, what if it's, what if she's raised by a Loki and she hates him, and she doesn't want to be called like, what if Richard E. Grant as a Loki adopted his own variant? That seems like something a Loki might do, and like tried to raise her as a daughter because Sylvie in the comics is not a Loki. Sylvie is a character called Enchantress who is like created by Loki as an agent of chaos. I don't think that's exactly what she is here. I think she is a Loki, but I think they're nodding to this sort of like daughter of Loki vibe uh, from her. And, and like her, her mission to bring down the TVA because they're fascistic and like, uh, you know, Loki's are agents of chaos and free will. And um, the TVA is the opposite of that. Uh, That is, that is a sensible enough motivation like, why wouldn't you want to bring down the TVA, given everything that they are doing uh, and the way in which they might be trying to snuff her out? But, like, I don't know. There's part of me that's like, what if it's more personal than that? What if, like, what if this older Loki has gained control of the TVA? Uh, this is just, like, I don't know, my mm-hmm. wheels my wheels spinning too too fast for their own good. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, if, if a Richard E. Grant Loki is revealed to be the man behind the curtain uh at the tva and she wants to bring it down because of a like her bad dad experience <laughs> like that that's better television that would be, I mean, yeah it would be really interesting and also would 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 in 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 retrospect like frame this episode kind of poignantly where she's kind of having fun with a younger different more rakish whatever charming version of her dad you know yeah. and like it's this kind of you know, field of dreams has kind of thing where, you know, like this kind of like little child's wish of what it might be to, um, you know, have a nice moment with a parent who is either gone or uh, not nice. This idea that she knows she's adopted, but like wasn't raised by the Asgardian gods. So like who raised her? You know what I mean? That's my question. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but um. That's just I'm I'm just trying to figure out how Richard e. Grant fits into all this because it ha- it can't be in a like minor way I think so we'll see. Um, all right. Do you want to get some emails or is there anything else? Oh, I I mean I just want to mention it just in case someone emails us and says you missed it, but uh, a cute little moment when uh, Loki is drunk and he smashes his glass. He says another, which is a reference to the first Thor movie when Thor does that when he has coffee for the first time and he sings. He does sing. Beautifully. I want, <laughs> beautifully. We know that Tom Hiddleston trained to sing for his um was it Hank Williams uh Oh, film I that saw the light, did? yeah. Yeah. With Scarlet Witch, isn't it? Oh. Uh she is. Yeah. But he's he sings in uh as Guardian, which I saw a translation on Reddit that I just thought I like he it's a little bit in English, but it's a little bit in quote unquote as Guardian, but it, it's basically Norwegian. So someone translated it and it says In Stormy Black Mountains I wander alone. Across glaciers, I make my way in the apple orchard. Uh, and then when are you coming home? So I don't know, just like a lovely little, I don't know. It reminds me of like the dwarves singing in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, <laughs> I loved, yeah, I loved totally. it. I loved it. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, 
All right. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to hit some emails? Yeah, we have an email from Dan. Um, he uh, he writes, uh, I'm getting a strong Wizard of Oz uh, vibe from the show, especially the TVA and the Timekeepers slash Space Lizards. The TVA city has a bit of an Emerald City vibe, albeit with a different color scheme. And the way the Timekeepers are described is toiling away, unraveling uh, the future timeline and too busy and important to be seen feels like Oz hiding behind his curtain and appearing as a powerful and monstrous image to those who seek his counsel. Even the sacred timeline feels a bit like the yellow brick road. Don't veer off the path. Too dangerous. Is Loki our Dorothy? Will he click his heels and return home by the end of the season? Is the hooded woman revealed at the end of episode two, the Wicked Witch of the West? I think, no, not exactly. No. The black, yeah. um, is Mobius good, Glinda the Good Witch? Although if Marvel had taught me anything, it's summed up in Loki's quote from episode two. I know something children don't, that no one bad is ever truly bad and no one good is ever truly good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are, you know, I think that that, that, that sort of the construction of Wizard of Oz is what Wizard of Oz is so baked into like, storytelling at this point um as influential and huge as that movie uh was and still is that like even if the illusions are accidental they're definitely there because that the the formula of the wizard of oz is just so um baked into how we think of this kind of like storytelling i guess yeah the the man behind the curtain thing is what really struck like why i, re I really definitely wanted to read this episode this week because Sylvie's trying to get to those golden elevators yeah. um, to figure out who the man behind the curtain, like who are the timekeepers? Are they actually three space lizards? <laughs> right. Or are they um, an older Loki? Or are they, you know, what are they? She, wa she wants to figure it out. And she, she may already know, but she, she definitely wants to unmask whatever the power structure is running this whole thing. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and who better for that moment of like pathetic reveal than Richard E. Grant, you know, uh, it's just <laughs> me, you know, like I'm, I'm running this show. You know? I think so. I think yeah. so. Um, yeah. And I, I think, I think that uh, the idea of like yellow brick road sort of sacred timeline thing is, is kind of interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how, how much further we can stretch it from there, but well, I mean, Sasha Lane's character saying, I want to go home, like stuff like that. You know, I think, I think this stuff and like, I think, <sighs> This idea, you know, in 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 the interview with Wumi Masako, she mentioned she talked a lot about or a bit about um, how how many I religious ideas are tied up in this premise that they've concocted here. This idea mm -hmm. of free will, determinism, who's playing God, and that's obviously was coursing all the way through Westworld, right? Anthony Hopkins is like playing God to a certain degree, um, but. Uh, when you think about that, then it then it becomes not just like who's who's the Wizard of Oz man behind the curtain. It's like it's like a his dark materials. Let's go murder God thing. You know what I mean? Like it's and then that puts. I mean, you and I are both English majors, so I apologize to everyone listening for doing this to them. But like, you know, there's a point in this episode when that that woman who blasts them with a gun calls them devils, right? Mm -hmm. And they wear those little horns and stuff like that. It's just very. It's very like. Milton Paradise Lost, like Lucifer Morningstar ca cast out of heaven, like, but you're kind of sympathetic to the sympathy for the devil, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because the devil's actually fighting on behalf of man uh, to a certain degree. So I, I, and, and what we Masako said was like, this is something they actively talked about. So it's not like her interpretation. It's like some, it's like, this is what the show is trying to be. Yeah. Is like something bigger and theological, which is really 
chewy and fast. And, you know, if you wanted to stretch a little further, you know, Loki has originated from Norse myth, pre-Christian myth. Um, right. And then Christianity, you know, eventually spread into Scandinavia. Um, and, you know, the, the Lutherans, or I guess Lutherans in Sweden, I don't know, but probably Norway too, yeah. Um, and maybe there is something of a metaphor there of, like, the old gods reclaiming their primacy in a certain culture you know and kind of uh fighting off the dominant yoke of uh <laughs> of, of big christ i guess yeah yeah exactly it's uh i mean the idea of gods and 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 their control over humanity or whatever is completely tied into the original concept of loki right Loki is a god of mischief. The mischief often involves messing with humans. Like that's that's just what it you know what what the text is of of all of this. So um, yeah, um, and I think I think that feeds in nicely to our other email that we have here. Uh, yeah, Luke wrote to us um, saying I was reminded of the phrase "the illusion of change" when revisiting uh, this vulture piece by Abraham Reisman um, about the comics origin of the Winter Soldier as Falcon and uh, Win- Winter Soldier was airing. Attributed to Stan Lee, the idea that readers don't want their characters to change could be tied to a suggestion you made um, last episode about the timekeepers being like certain toxic fans complaining when their vision of a character is challenged. But since the idea came from someone with editorial power, Lee, and fans don't actually have the ability to prune timelines, only to be uh, vociferous about them, um, I wanted to suggest the analogy of timekeepers and creatives editorial. For example, in the comics, Spider-Man's marriage to Mary Jane being erased at the call of then EIC of Marvel Comics' Joe Quesada, a timeline cauterized because things were drifting too far for the illusion of change. Or the DC Comics' reign of Jeff Johns reversing the progress of legacy characters like Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner of Flash Wally West to reassert their priors. Um, So a lot of that doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. Sorry, Richard. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I I mean, I I think you you can speak more specifically, but... um, yeah, the idea, I, the idea yeah. of like, okay, so so let me give an example. Um, an example that Luke gives is this idea of like, so in the comics, Peter Parker marries Mary Jane, right? Um, as he does in, I think at least one of the films or something like that. Um, uh, but as that progresses, then you move too far away from this idea of like Peter Parker upstart teen. That's why comics are constantly cycling back to the origin story. That's why Batman movies are constantly cycling back to the Batman, you know, because like you, you don't want a Batman who has evolved over the films. You want the Batman who is still all knotted up about how his parents died in that alleyway. You know what I mean? Uh, that illusion of change of like in the, in the comic world with these long running storylines, you constantly have pruning and rebooting and, and reimagining and, and all this sort of stuff, all these various tricks to get us back to the story that worked in the first place, because comic readers don't want their iconic characters to actually demonstrably change. You know what I mean? And so, and we actually got an email uh, about how someone didn't want an evolved Loki. They want the Loki. You know, this this show reboots Loki back to Loki of the Avengers because people don't want the touchy-feely, some people don't want the touchy-feely uh, Loki from Infinity War. They want the God of Mischief. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, 
a point that Luke raises is this idea of like at the end of WandaVision, has Wanda really changed? Like, has her has she grown really from her wound about Vision at, that that happened in uh, Infinity War? Like, did that uh, did that show really advance her growth? Or was it just like one cycle of her grief or Falcon, the Winter Soldier similarly have have those characters advanced or are they still just sort of like tied up in this idea of Steve and all this sort of stuff? So like, I don't know, this idea of like, I think it's so interesting, this idea of like the Marvel or the comic book powers that be being the timekeepers constantly pruning things to to make sure that they don't actually change in a way that would perturb readers what do you think well a, a couple things i mean i think one thing that you know if we're kind of operating on the premise that the timekeepers in the show are sort of sinister i don't and maybe this is just because i'm on one side of things but i don't find anything sinister about people who run a thing changing the thing that they run <laughs> you know like that's for sure unless for sure. They, they they take the yaw into like right-wing extremism or something you know like that would be bad but like the stakes I, it's, are it's completely a, different. It's yeah, a tricky thing to swallow, but they don't really owe anyone anything. They can make those decisions if they want. And then people can, you know, respond with their wallets and either not watch it or read it or whatever. Um, but yes, I think in a, in a less like kind of, you know, morally judgmented way, like, yes, I mean, I think that th that is probably a better analogy than the, the fan community thing. But I, I think it was something I, I said last episode um, that, that, yeah, it's the same kind of idea of like, maintaining a sort of lucrative in whatever sense you mean lucrative status quo you know while while creating the illusion of of difference and i think that you know you're right to bring up uh wandavision because that was something that did frustrate me about the finale of that show and i wrote something about it if people want to read it on vf.com that like this show that was i think successfully in, in other episodes about you know this character's kind of evolution her, her the a grief over something co that concrete that had happened um, was then a little bit sort of like, well, but also he could come back someday, you know, it, it, so mm -hmm. it didn't actually mm -hmm. really say anything about grief in our own lives because, you know, Marvel's going to Marvel and they can bring uh, a character back whenever they want. Um, yeah. So I think, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. And I also think that it is good that we should be kind of questioning, not just the actual text that we're being served by this massive kind of dominating company, but also like how those texts uh kind of be used in terms of assessment of that entity because we should um we can like these things but we think we should also question the 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 sort of power that they hold um in an industry that is quickly um consolidating yeah i mean that's a good point and i think that um i think there's nothing wrong with wanting your 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 batman or your your loki whoever freshly wounded you know what i mean like that's that's the juice of drama, but it's, it is interesting in in a TV format because, like, something that uh, I, I was listening to Rob McElhenney, who runs uh, Mythic Quest, and of course, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the longest running live action television show in history. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and something that he said about that show, which is not a show that I've watched like too closely over the years, is uh, he was like, he one of the purposes of that show was to create characters that never learn any lessons. That hasn't always exactly been true for his character, Mac, because there's been some stuff that, like, his character's gone through. But, like, he's like, what if we had a group of people, a group of, like, assholes who really needed to have lessons that they learned and they just never, ever, ever learned them? 
And that's how you have a show that runs that long, because otherwise you you mature out of your premise. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like with the character development. And they were like, what if we just don't develop these characters? Uh, and that's wild to me. I mean, like him saying that made me want to watch every single episode of It's Always Sunny to be like, how did you do that? Uh, not have your characters change. Um, but, you know, but, but that's what television usually is. And that's what sort of like, you know, when Michael Waldron was talking about why Mad Men is one of his favorite shows, he's like, it's not that the Dawn Draper at the end of Mad Men is like a completely evolved character. No, he retreats back to cynicism, you know. He does, but he is still a different character than he was when the show started. Yeah. And that is important. Uh, Well, because time and and experience have developed and aged him, you know, whereas in this world, that even that doesn't have to happen necessarily, (laughs) you know. And if we we look at, um, you know, I think... You 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 sort of introduced this concept to me probably several years ago at this point that Marvel is actually all t- TV, that the movies are just right. episodes, and yeah. it, if that's the case on a grand now what thirteen year scale, maybe they aren't changing. Maybe it is. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. We just haven't been standing far enough back to to notice. I mean, obviously some of these emailers have, um, but you know, but yeah, I, I think th- they, yeah. I mean, I think I think they they did some some work with Tony Stark. Uh, the beauty of Captain America is his unchangeability, right? That is sort of that character, right? Tony Stark, there's some evolution into like Family Man from Playboy. I can see that arc. Um, Thor has changed significantly, but that's because the actor did not want to do <laughs> the character that they wrote for him. And so they just changed his character entirely in a fun movie so that we didn't notice. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I think that idea of of stasis is something that the comic book industry, I don't know, has done some really, really nimble storytelling trickery around. And so we'll see. We'll see what they do with Loki in the end. I don't know. My 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 hope is that and, and because they have such an easy way to just kind of close this loop and, and, and just put Loki right back in where we started. Um, so th- maybe that is, in fact, what they're going to do. But my hope is that this, the end of this series, which I'm really enjoying so far, um, doesn't kind of end on that note of like shrug emoticon. Well, but we could just always do this again that WandaVision had, you know, as much as I appreciated WandaVision and was like really engaged with it and and thought it was well made. um, I I think that that sort of, well, no, just kidding. This is an intro to uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, like that kind of synergy that is much more commercially economically um engineered than it is creatively um that could maybe start to wear on more casual fans like myself um whereas you know i think the, the the diehard fans probably have their own um issues and also hopes and all that but um the the watching of these things which are pleasurable to watch but that kind of seem to serve um, well, I guess in, in this show's parlance, that kind of like grand purpose, which is to just push us into the next thing, that could start to get frustrating. But I think also that's why they're constantly just um, introducing new characters. You know, yeah. why we get a Shang-Chi or Eternals or yeah. Captain Marvel or whatever it is. And, and, and the way in which the TV world is going to open that even further with like Miss Marvel and some of the Young Avengers characters and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just interesting. Um, and I will be interested if anyone else has anyone else who is even more versed in in comic book 
world than I am, uh, which is not hard to be, uh, to let us know what your thoughts are about um, this illusion of change idea. I don't know. It's interesting to me. I was like, oh, that's that's why we're always going back to that alley with the Waynes. I see. Um, yeah. So thank right, you and- for those emails for the for people who yeah. wrote in about that particular topic. I I actually kind of like really genuinely did learn something about the way that comic book culture is sort of thought about and discussed. So I really appreciated it. Um, and sorry for making you read the words Wally West. I do apologize for that. Um, yeah, I okay. really <laughs> lost the plot at the end of that email. Not, not, not on, not the writer's fault. My own ignorance. <laughs> but something I will, I will just say one, one last thing that Luke's email brought up that that we didn't touch on is he was talking about things like, uh, Marvel properties that were sort of snuffed out before they even had a chance to live, like Edgar Wright's version of Ant Man, or Patty Jenkins was going to do Thor: The Dark World, mm-hmm. and were those ideas that they had? I mean, there's other things at play that I'm literally writing an entire book about, but like the ideas that they had for those films, were they just a little too divergent from the sacred timeline? Were they a little too, too close to the red line to live? And that's why Edgar Wright didn't get to make his Ant-Man uh, sort of thing. Like he was, he was not, right. it wasn't going to be able to fold back into the sacred timeline uh, cleanly. And from that perspective, going back to my little small pushback on something luke suggested is that like okay i could then see a sort of sinister element there you know of like because we're we're being denied potentially something really interesting versus something that is kind of packaged and ready to like just continue the brand you know um but yeah i I think it's great you revealed joanna just now that you're writing a whole book about thor the dark world i think that's really (laughs) a rich topic for a long uh non-fiction book the best Marvel film will get the full treatment for me. No, I'm I'm writing history of Marvel Studios. I don't like to talk about it too much uh, in case, you know, whatever. Let's not jinx it. Um, All right. So uh, anything else we want to talk about before we go to our interview this week? No, I think we talked about it all. All right. So the great woman, Misako, we, we have both talked about how much we liked her work uh, previous to this. I'm excited now by the prospect of like a B-15 waking up. <laughs> to what uh she has been put through uh to see what what when we might do with that um obviously i wasn't aware of that when i talked to her last week but um such is the nature of the of the of the marvel interviews but um and i just want to say uh there, there were some sound issues on the line with her so i had to i had to prune some of our conversations so you might hear references back to something you didn't get to hear because the sound was cutting out she but i i want to shout out a couple things first of all she talked about I asked her about why everyone on the TV had an American accent, especially since like Bumi Misako and Gugum Bathara are not Americans. And she said she didn't know. She did the audition in her British accent and her American accent and was told that everyone would be doing an American accent. So I just have questions. About, like, presumably these variants were plucked from all over the world. Why they all sound American at the TVA? I don't know. Um, number two, uh, she was talking about how how much time Tom Hiddleston spent with her training for stunt work and training uh and like running lines with her and all this sort of stuff like that in a way um i think they were both at i think it was rada i think you know i think they were both like they kind i don't think they were classmates but they kind of like come from the same world or whatever so like there was a connection there but at the same time she was very clear she's like this is not what the star of the show would usually do Mm -hmm. for and i i just think that sort of speaks to and we talked about this a little bit speaks to like Tom's personal investment in the show as an, as not just the star, but an executive producer and someone who just really wants to make sure every single part of this show named for his character that made his career is 
is uh is done right so um yeah there you go so let us hear from the great uh Wilmy Masaka. hi i'm jeremy larson the reviews director of pitchfork and this podcast is supported by pitchfork music festival Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I want to, I want to start by asking you about your audition. I, it's my understanding that... Um, you were sent sides. You you didn't even know what project you were auditioning for. You're sent sides. Um, can you tell me anything about, you know, usually those sides have nothing to do with the actual project. Can you tell me anything about sort of the flavor they were trying to draw out of you in those, in those sides that they sent you for this audition? I feel like, actually, when I think back to it, it was probably a scene inspired by b15 and mobius or something like that those two just being on different pages but on the same team what can you tell me about sort of when the tva was first explained to you what they explained like what did they tell you at least as as far as you can tell me what did they tell you about what this organization was um that your character would be a part of okay so the tva is this whole world it's a whole world and entity outside of time and space as we know it and their whole existence is to keep the timeline that we're watching in the MCU like in line so it just it kind of just brought up so many questions about like free will and like destiny and and you know um you know who's good who's bad like what's meant to happen what's are you ever going to win? Like, unless they tell you you are going to win, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so it was really complicated, but it was really cool because it just, because it just felt like everything, it feels like everything's kind of possible now, like, and, and nothing is certain anymore because, it's like, oh, it's the will of the TVA. Right. Oh. <laughs> right? To that end, I mean, like, that sounds a little sinister to me. I don't know. And, and like, the, you know, you're you're wearing this, like, almost riot gear, which I can't imagine was super fun to wear in the Atlanta heat, by the way. Um, and, no. <laughs> uh, you know, and there's propaganda on the wall. You know, like, I'm I'm a little, I'm looking askance at the TVA. They, they frighten me a little bit. <laughs> you know, when you play a character... You have to, you have to kind of 
understand and empathize with that person. And so, like, you're playing a villain and you can't think of them as a bad person. You have to think of them as that their reason and ideas are for what they think is good. So I've literally, it's only doing these interviews with people that I'm like, oh, you think that the TV is bad? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, it, it is just what it is. Like, so in my head, I'm like, it, it is what it is, right? Um, and I just did, I just never saw, I just never saw them as like baddies when I, when I start, when I started the project, because I was like, well, that's just it. The TVA runs things and, and, and I work for the TVA, therefore I'm good. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's, just, it's interesting listening to everyone going, oh, this, this propaganda. I'm like, oh, I guess so. If I was, if I was watching it. <laughs> maybe I would have felt the same but I just kind of took it as the truth like right. these guys run the timeline right. so and that's just how it's always been is is uh is B15 um quite old I mean time works differently but like should we be thinking of B15 as like a sort of an ancient creature or or how should we be thinking about her I don't know. Maybe just timeless. Ooh, Ooh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Classic, elegant, timeless, B-15. Love it. Um, (laughs) I want to ask you, so something that, you know, Kate and Tom and a number of other people have talked about in terms of um, something that happened on set was, were these like Loki lectures that Tom would give. <laughs> and before people saw the episodes, I think they were framing them as sort of just things that he gave crew. But now that we know that there are various people, including yourself in episode two, who are playing Loki in some way or another, was this actually like an acting class? Like, was Tom giving Loki acting lessons on set? You know, I didn't go to Loki lectures. <laughs> I didn't know they existed until this press jacket. So I'm like... <laughs> What happened? What did I miss out? Oh, like I would ask him questions about the MCU, um, and I would ask him questions about playing Loki and stuff. But I didn't go to the sc- I didn't go to school, and <laughs> <laughs> I missed out. Um, however, playing Loki, I did get some tips, some Lokiisms, some things that I could just ping out that were that were just Loki esque. Um, so yeah, I definitely asked Tom for advice for that because I had, you know, it's such a small moment and a small like moment on, on screen, but it's like, it's huge, right? It's like everyone in this moment needs to know that it's not me anymore and that it's a, a, a variant of him. I mean, it's a huge moment because when you, when you did the thing where you cocked your head to the, the side and smiled and then Tom mirrored you, um, I basically like yeah. stopped and rewound that three times because I just enjoyed it so much. Um, I thought yeah, it was so good. Was I thought you just really nailed yeah, it. Was that, was that... Like a little shorthand that was just so low-key? <laughs> was, that, <laughs> was that in the script or is that something that you and Tom worked out or Kate? Yeah, Tom and I worked it out That's together. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. 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 I love it. The MCU does have like a few face, fail-safes sort of built into how they, you know, they're such a well-oiled machine at this point. Um, did you wind up doing any, one thing that they're kind of known for, at least in the film world is, is, uh, like a built-in reshoot, um, schedule if they want to tweak anything. Did you, did you do any of that on the TV show? Yeah, we had a week of reshoots in February, but it was just, it was so small because 
we had a pandemic to really tighten things up in the script. Mm. So things that, you know, we were able to, we were getting rewrites throughout the pandemic and it was just getting tighter and tighter. So we didn't actually, we really didn't need to do many reshoots at all. It was so, by the time we got back in September, the scripts were in such great places that it was like, oh, I think we just needed to change like a couple of angles Mm-hmm. of things yeah like, and that was really it um it wasn't actually there weren't many there weren't I don't think there were any story beats that we needed to reshoot for clarity it had all been kind of done in the in the hiatus <laughs> Ever, I mean not of the same variety obviously because no one wants another global pandemic clearly but uh you know I feel like right. all tv productions or film productions should have like a couple months in the middle where you just sit and really really have a think about what you're doing and and yeah, tighten up. What's working and what's yeah. Not. yeah yeah I, I agree <laughs> <laughs> tackle your rewrites I then agree. um I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned um, rehearsing stunts with Tom. You mentioned working through some script stuff with Tom. And I know you've said elsewhere that, you know, he, he really worked with you and ran lines with you and all this sort of stuff. Do you, was it your sense that, you know, that he was kind of took this project personally, that this is a character that he's played for so long. He's an executive producer on the show. Like, is he, was he so hands-on in this because this is something that he just really wanted to make sure they got right I think so I feel like he is so um I think he's so in love with Loki as a character I think he's so in love with the MCU and the fans like he's so in he I know that he feels completely indebted to them and that his life is what it is because of Loki and and the MCU and their fans and so I just know like it just, and I think he knows how intimidating it is. It must be for newbies like us to join such a huge franchise already. Um, like he was just so like I don't know. I want to say like a big brother, like you know, just kind of keeping us chill about it. It's like <laughs> you know, it didn't feel as scary as I thought it was going to feel. Um, and I, part of that is because I did know Tom and Gugu, but it's also because he, it was just so normal. It felt like, it just, it just felt like we were just working. And we were just enjoying each other and enjoying what we were doing. And it didn't, I didn't feel this like ever like, the pressure of being in the MCU or like what are the fans going to think? I was just like, do it. We were just doing our jobs and having a lot of fun whilst doing it. Um, so yeah, I think Tom, I think he just, I think he's just kind of in love with the whole, you know, world from the, the people that he works with. Like, I know that he, you know, thinks fondly of all of the people he's worked with over the last 10 years in the MCU. I know that he's so in love with all of the fans and how much they've taken to Loki. So I just, he's just passionate about it. And I, and so, and so happy. Like he's just really happy about 
people, you know, still want to see, they want to see Loki, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's one of those, so, he's such a loved character. Um, so I think it just means the world to him. It really, I think it really does. And so like he is totally up for making it as brilliant as it possibly can for everyone who's made it even possible. So yeah, like us doing lines is nothing. It's just like, we're just making the show better, you know? I, I love hearing that. And I love, I love what I've seen so far of people reacting, uh, to Loki, what has it been from your end seeing, what has it been like seeing folks react to the first couple episodes here? I, I don't really um, read like reviews or anything. Um, I kind of gauge it from like the people I know if they like it and, and my team, if, uh-huh. they say, if they say it's, it's kind of gone down well, but I don't read the reviews. Like I'll just, they'll just say, it, 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 you know, it got good figures and I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> and I guess the big, the idea is like, does it get good figures for episode two or episode six? Like, um, and then I kind of know how it kind of goes down, but I don't really know how to engage with, I don't know how someone knows how it's going down. I don't know how you know, except for like, reading a review but that's one person's opinion so I don't really know how the, right, the fans right. feel about it I, I, I don't know <laughs> um I don't know I I mean I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you and you can you can choose to believe me or not but my impression from the outside is people are absolutely loving oh, it um from critics to fans not just like long-term fans fan Loki fans but you know fans of television because it's 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 elevated you know you've got these like long scenes of dialogue like it's not just uh and there's nothing wrong with a marvel project that's just punching because i like to watch punching <laughs> sometimes but sometimes you want to watch something that's like a little bit more dialogue and character heavy and that's what it feels like loki has to offer yeah to it definitely has like i don't really feel like it asks some really big questions um throughout the whole series and yeah it doesn't feel just like action it feels like existential sometimes you know like oh wow do we have <laughs> yeah. free will or I mean really do we have free will like you know I had a conversation with a journalist and they were free and it was like <laughs> you know if like you know if you think about it in like religious terms if you know Jesus was meant to die on the cross and ra- and be raised three days later. Was Judas ever bad? Or was he just doing what needed to be done? These are huge, huge questions. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, he's not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I think that that idea of free will and, 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 and destiny, it's like, it's one of those things that we kind of fly about. Like, you'll say when, especially like in times of comfort, you know, God's will or like, you know, the universe or like, uh, you know, spirit, like, you know, destiny, but in times of like, you know, absolute like individuality, it's like, of course I have free, of course I have free will, but <laughs> it's like these, these things that we lean on um, to make sense of the world or make us feel better about how things are turning out, like just... Yeah, and I think I think it actually just makes you think 
well, it, it can have really big discussions. You can have really big discussions when watching Loki. <laughs> that that language is there in the script, right? This idea of a sacred timeline, or you know, there's just like this like theological, religious vibe hanging right. around the, the authority yeah. of the yeah. TVA. And I'm wondering, like, did that, did you guys have conversations about that? Oh, like, did that feel yeah. like, oh, we're tackling God here? Like what, you know, what, what were those conversations there like? There were definitely conversations like that because it just, it brings up those questions, like, and especially like, you know, I don't know, like, um, you know, good and bad, like, um, if some, you know, if someone, if there's no choice, is someone ever really bad because they didn't actually have a choice? So can you? I don't know. Like villain and hero, like it's it's just really they're just big questions that you ultimately just have because you're just having them hypothetically, and then you bring them to your real everyday life like you're you know you're you know then you know yeah. judas and jesus come up <laughs> you think well you know here we go <laughs> it's yeah these are conversations that just yeah i do kind of love that about my job is sometimes these you know these these shows and it feels like all fun and games sometimes and then you just find yourself like swirling onto like bigger themes that actually you know, really, you know, question things in your your mind, just in general, like, yeah. The last question I want to ask you, and thank you so, thank you so much for your time and, and your lovely answers. Um, but um, I want to ask you, um, you know, B-15 and, and Mobius often disagree on how to handle Loki, uh, completely disagree. And, and we're inclined as audience members to be kind of on Mobius' side because we want to watch Loki, like, do his mischief and do his chaos, right? Like, that's why we're, that's why we're all in on a character like Loki. And, and it's B-15's job to, to, uh, put a stop to that, you know, and, and it's just sort of like, uh, an unenviable position for your character to be in. But, my, you know, my question is at the end of this episode, uh, at the end of episode two, um, we see, you know, Loki escape and, and Mobius sort of chase him down and, and it feels very much like your character was right and Mobius was wrong in terms of, um, being able to trust or what kind of leeway to give this character. And I was, I had a very like, listen to women moment about that <laughs> or listen to black women moment about that. And I was just wondering if you had a similar sort of like, or any, any of those kinds of thoughts around the like B15 Mobius uh, relationship. I mean, I would agree. Listen to women, listen to black women. I'm generally always right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I guess the thing is, is that, the show would end very quickly <laughs> if they were to be fifteen. Right. But it would be more smooth. <laughs> Less of a bumpy ride. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's true. The TVA would be more successful. Loki the show might be less right. fun. So there's that's the that's the binary. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for your chat and for all your tremendous uh great work and I can't wait to see what you do. Thank next. you so much. Thank you. This was delightful. All right, we now have Anthony Breskin here. Hello, Anthony. Mm. How are you? Hey, good to be back. 
Uh, in Loki land. <laughs> Electric Loki land. <laughs> do you want to start with your overall impressions of the episode? Because I think it landed a little differently for you than it did for Richard and me. Yeah. For some reason, this one didn't hit all the buttons for me. I don't, I don't know where I was going with it. It, it didn't play the uh, heavy keys or the light <laughs> keys. It felt a little Land of the Lost to me, being stuck on this uh, alien world, and it felt very green screen to me. And I know, again, it's a mo- it's a planet that's going to crash into a moon. I don't expect ultra realism, but it just it felt very desolate and not very interesting, you know. And uh, you know the stuff, even they even seem to acknowledge this in the writing a little bit, like getting aboard the train in a disguise isn't a plan it's just doing a thing it 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 all felt very much like that to me like let's just get from point a to point b and uh i i just i don't think they're actually going to die there so that tension never really existed for me um so yeah it just it left me a little cold this episode sorry to say uh yeah i guess what i'll say you know not to disagree with you because you're definitely allowed to have your own own take on an episode. But we, we say respect that, like, each other's opinions, but it's fun to disagree. Let's disagree. Well, well, for me, the point was not like, are they going to make it or aren't they going to make it? Because, uh, as you say, that, that's never yeah. really a question. It gives them a propulsive movement, gives a clock on the episode. Yeah. It gives something them something to, to do, do yeah. right? And then, so then the point isn't are they going to make it? The point is like these two characters connecting and getting to know each other um, and forming a kind of uneasy alliance. And so it's a very, it's a very character, I think rich episode. Um, Yeah. You know, that's, that's my take. Yeah. I get it. I get what the, what it was trying to do. I just feel like, the batteries are dead. They just happen to be dead on the device that we use all the time. Like, I don't know. Like, that just, it just felt very, it felt like it was really reaching. And I thought they could have been set up on a, they could have been teamed up and we could have gotten that interaction mm-hmm. with them on the run in, uh, I don't know, in a way that just made a little more sense or was a, a, perhaps a little more interesting. I just wasn't very interested in the journey. And so I found myself less interested in their interaction right so uh yeah it 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 almost felt like the 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 flimsiness of the plot detracted from the 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 interest i had in the character building but that's interesting yeah i I could see that i think to to yes and your Mm -hmm. sort of phrasing of it i would say i wasn't all that interested in the destination like Mm -hmm. i didn't really care but I did care about the journey because it meant like time with these characters. If that makes sense. So, yeah. um, but I, but I hear what you're saying. You wanted a little bit more while still having that sort of rich character and, work. And I guess, I guess the time with the characters just didn't interest me that much either. So I kept wanting it to be more, or I think he would have, I, I kept wanting him to ask the questions I had like, okay, your name is Sylvie. So what, what does that mean? Like, who are you? I, I, I really would have enjoyed that a little bit more of like trying to unravel the mystery of the variants rather than just rolling with it. So, yeah. Well, know. that's a, it's a, a, probably a mystery for another episode. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to hit your thoughts on, on the Sylvia of it all? 
we yes. we so like I dropped I dropped this little like pre recorded sentence into last week's episode because we had discovered the the Sylvie info via foreign credits on last yeah. week's episode, and so I just sort of dropped a quick thing into the episode. But uh, Richard and Anthony and I didn't get a chance to talk about it. So so Anthony, what are your what are your Sylvie takes there? Well, obviously Sylvie Lushton was uh, I guess you'd call her Enchantress too. Um, the second iteration of that character in the Thor storyline. And she was, uh, as I understand it, sort of conjured by Loki and then took on the role of Enchantress. Or again, we have talked about this many, many times to the point where it, it also feels a little stale to me, like taking on the mantle of a particular character. In this case, uh, you know, you and I have also discussed how Marvel movies mash up the legacy of the comics and take things and leave things. So it kind of seems like I know she goes by or they're calling her a very a Loki variant. But the way she rejects that name felt very strange to me. Like if you were a Loki, why isn't she fighting for supremacy? Like Why is she not like, no, I'm the real Loki and the way he is. And instead, she she calls herself Sylvie. And that's the that's a name that, you know, I guess. There could be other Marvel characters named Sylvie, but like that that directly aligns with the Thor Loki storyline. Uh, yeah. In the comics. So yeah. there's Enchantress. So why call her Sylvie if she's not Enchantress? Uh, do you think they're 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 trying to do like okay, she's a Loki variant and Enchantress? Yeah, I think they're trying to. They're definitely intentionally invoking Enchantress. I think you know, especially because he he uses the word enchantment. To describe uh, yeah. her powers, right? So, like, I I do think that they're intentionally leaning into that, but it will not surprise you that I have a theory <laughs> as to why maybe she's rejecting the Loki name. What um, is it? Well, so uh, you know, I, I raised this with Richard a little bit, but like, uh, you know, Loki goes into the fact that you know he was adopted, that Frigga taught him magic, all this sort of stuff like that. He found out late in life that he was adopted, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I knew I was adopted." From the beginning but like she doesn't say who raised you know to your point she doesn't offer up information about herself um because that's uh that's not what she's doing um and uh she doesn't say who raised her so i had an idea what if another loki raised her and what if it's richard e grant's loki who was her like father mm. and she rejects the loki name because she doesn't want to be like him what if further? <laughs> what if he's behind all the monkey shines at the TVA? You know what I mean? And her quest to destroy the TVA is actually a quest to destroy this man who raised her, who she rejects for whatever reasons. Listen, do I have a lot of uh, fact to build this theory on? No, but has that stopped me before? She certainly hasn't. But I, I just like to say, I was, I like you, was really struck by this idea of like, why is she so vehemently rejecting? the Loki name, what is her negative association with that? And the only thing I could, or the first thing that I thought of was this idea of like, she knows a Loki, uh, maybe, you know, maybe raised by Loki and, and doesn't want to be associated with him. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think there's more to unpack there. So maybe this is a, this is kind of a liminal space episode and, and they're just laying a little bit of a foundation that will pay off later. Maybe I'll look back at this episode and go, oh, okay, cool. That was, 
you know, the whole escape the moon <laughs> plot is, uh, you know, that was just cover so that they could hint at, at this rejection of the name, maybe rejection of her past. I'm not really sure what she's doing, hopping around through space and time. Uh, She's trying yeah. to destroy the TVA, and it's and the question is like, but why? Why? Yeah. And the reason she offers is like the implied reason is that they're fascistic time cops, and that's a good enough reason for me. But like, but what if it's more personal than that? Do you know? I, I yeah, I, I don't know. But it, it there's something that um, I think I've mentioned this on this podcast before. Um, that you know I heard Damon Lindelof say about Lost, which is the greatest answer to a mystery is a person, you know what I mean? And this sort of like, who is she looking for, you know, up the golden elevators? And like one answer could be the timekeepers could be Kang. That's maybe somewhat satisfying to comic book nerds, but what's more satisfying from a grander storytelling perspective than something a little bit more personal than that. Hmm. Do you know? I like that. I guess this is just one of the things that bothers me in a, in a in a movie or a TV show where so much could be resolved with a conversation and they have the time to have these conversations. Like you say, they're on a train for a while and they're, they're doing the midnight run to escape this moon. I, I guess it's just like, what do you want? What are you doing? Here's what I'm doing. Like, Loki volunteers that. Um, well, I think he's trying to draw her out and she's not, she's you know, not he's offering, him. he's, he's, He's doing that con man thing where he's like, let me offer you something. Let me tell you personal things about my mom, all this sort of stuff to try to draw you out. And she's right. like, I'm not going to be drawn out like it's- that. But I have an idea. I have a que- I, I, I have no facts about this. Only questions, which is this is a sh- little shorter episode than the two previous episodes. Um, and it ends super abruptly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not in a way that I object to, but it ends really abruptly. And I'm like, well, what if there was originally, um, a little bit more? Cause I, I imagine that the next episode starts with their rescue from this moon, whoever it comes from. Um, but what if, what if that was the end? Like, what if Sylvie, seeing that they're trapped on this planet, thinking that the, ta- the time pad is, uh, broken, uh, and they have no way off. What if she then offers up that information that you're looking for, Anthony? I know this is all speculation, but like, what if that prompts her to be forthcoming? And then maybe it turns out that the thing wasn't broken the whole time because that's something that Loki could definitely have conjured if he wanted for sure. to, to like draw but, something out of her. But, but like, you know, that's what I mean is where I feel like eh, this all feels like treading water to me. So. Like, maybe we could have just cut to that, like, gotten to that. Like, the fact that they're on this run together, I think, was enough that I don't know what we needed all of the all of the downtime for. Uh, I don't know. The downtime, I mean, I just, here's what I'll say in rebuttal to that, is that mm-hmm. I feel like what they're, and I, you know, Richard and I mentioned this, but, like, I think what they're give, trying to give us in this episode is what I felt they failed to give us in Falcon Winter Soldier. Which is just like a little bit more breathing room and context for a character and their motivation. Right. Do you know what I mean? And like, I hear you when you say, but we didn't really get her motivation in this episode. And I agree with you. But I'm like, I like that they took the time here. Um, I'm, I, you know, 
in the end you might be right but like i i'm hoping that the that the emotional building blocks that they put in this episode will make whatever action comes in the back three feel that much more resonant hmm. before having done the emotional work here do you know what i mean all right i'm rooting for that i'm i'm ready to get okay. back on board I, okay yeah i i it's not um, like i hate the show now but it just i don't know i i was a weirded out by it because i'm like why am i not more into this mm. <laughs> i'm usually you know a, i'm i'm a softy uh i'm i'm i can usually you know roll with things and enjoy them but for some reason i just wasn't loving this one and uh, yeah it's true i'm not used to you liking something less than i like it it's usually the reverse so um yeah uh th- maybe it's, it's, it's just <laughs> i'm just surly maybe maybe i'm in a bad space <laughs> No, <laughs> Maybe no, no, it's no. me. It's not you, Loki. It's me. <laughs> uh, but I love the first two episodes. I think. I think. Also, I feel like there was less mystery building and more mystery withholding, and that I find extremely frustrating. Mm. The mystery withholding. Well, um, we did. We I, did learn a big piece of information, right? Which is that the people who work at the TVA, uh, yes, are cool. mine. Are memory wiped variants. And not only that, but we learned we had that time question answered for us, right? Because the TVA exists outside of time. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about like one theory around that uh, in just a second. But like at the very least, you know, what Sylvie says is that when she went to see 20's mind to try to find a memory uh, to inhabit this like margarita based bar memory, she had to go back hundreds and hundreds of years. But that was a like, and Richard pointed this out. This that was a contemporary setting, that bar, right? Mm-hmm. That was like a modern bar, but it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So like, time passes differently. The TVA, TVA is out. Of, TVA is out of time, sure. But when we circle back to that question of what is long ago in Miss Minutes' little prologue mean to something out of time, we have this context of. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago is now to C20. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's not, it's not now <laughs> that we're talking about in terms of the TVA. Um, so yeah. Uh, do you, do you have any thoughts or feelings about, about this, like, inf- information about the, the variants working at the TVA? Yeah. I'm trying to wrestle with it, honestly. Like, it feels like it feels like they're kind of against their will. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know that these are just people stolen, trafficked in a way. Yeah, uh, that's a heavy word, so I don't mean to apply it inappropriately to a to a comic book storyline. But you know, people who are who are sort of just. Yeah, they're they're just uh, uh, you know I hate to, and I wouldn't say zombies. That also implies something that's beyond what this is. But just sort of uh, bedazzled or mesmerized, um, enchanted, enchanted. <laughs> yeah, the way Loki used his staff to, yeah. you know, uh, what would be the term there? Just just uh, possess the people who um, he wants to control. So. They're against their will. They're in there doing so. They're out there doing some kind of bidding. So maybe this culling of the timeline is not actually what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Um, it does remind me a little bit of Lost and when we finally go to the camp of the others and it's this sort of little village of, of neat and tidy bungalows and they have a book club and they just seem like ordinary people, but they're, um, they've been sent to this island for mysterious, nefarious purposes. So they're just kind of going with it. And uh, I, I forget on Lost whether they were, how much how much awareness they had of their past or what they were actually supposed to be doing on this island. But um, the TVA feels like they're, the, the workers there seem like they're, they feel like they're doing uh, good good work, important work, keeping the timeline from collapsing. But like a lot of people in bureaucracies, maybe you're not doing such good work. Maybe you're working on behalf of a much more powerful entity <laughs> uh, or force that mm -hmm. uh, doesn't have the world's best interest in mind. And so uh, I think that says a lot right there. I think we're going to learn a lot more about what's in at the top of that gold elevator that uh, Lady Loki was trying to get to. Do you think Mobius is a, is a memory wiped? Uh variant yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i think me too i think he, he's gonna have a, an awakening mm -hmm. and uh we're gonna learn that he was there is something about him from the 90s i am ready to put good money down on all that. your jet ski savings on jet the skis <laughs> and josta go back to that the thumbnail the thumbprint cookies theory of uh of mobius that he yeah. is he is nostalgic for the time from whence he came. Do you think That's... that um, the stuff with like the the rings on the coffee table and the other like, do you think he's constantly having his memory wiped? Yeah, or... that yeah. is what I think happens is that yeah. he he looks at the rings and is like, I don't remember doing that. And she's like, that's right. You don't remember doing that. Right. So the question but is like, I, what does Ravana know? And when, when does she, when does she know it? Do you know mm -hmm, what I mean? Like is yeah. she awake. Um, I feel like, yes, I think she knows. Yeah. I think, I, think I, it's like, like I said, in any bureaucracy, I think the higher up you go, the more awareness people have. Yeah. And so, uh, that, yeah, I think there's. I think the rings now. Uh, that's evidence that he's he's been there before. He's done this before. It's just a new cycle, as far as he's concerned. We had a question about yeah, and like this this sort of awakening thing. Like one one um, analogous thing that Richard and I talked about was Westworld. This sort of like awakening oh, cool. of of mm -hmm. the sort of robots and Westworld kind of thing. Um, sorry, the hosts in Westworld, but um. The uh, another thing that came to mind was, you know, Kate Heron, the series director, had said that there was like a lot of they thought about seven a lot. And uh, we, we mentioned this sort of like musical uh, Easter egg from seven in episode two. One of our listeners pointed out that the end credits look a lot like the seven credits. But I was just thinking, like, does that mean Mobius is going to have, like, a what's in the box sort of moment? You know box. what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like a big moment for him of, like, reshifting everything. Um, I can I can see that happening. There, uh, you know, what does this do to my is Mobius uh, Loki theory? I don't think it punts it entirely out the window because he could still technically be a Loki variant, but probably isn't. But, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going to keep the, the home fires burning for that one, but um, I'm not saying it's completely dead. Uh, we did get an email from a listener, um, Shruti, uh, about 
the Mobius is Loki theory. Um, and she wrote, while I really enjoy the Mobius is Loki theory, I think all the evidence really works. And I think all the evidence really works to support it. I hope it isn't true. I think the first episode of the show uses Loki as a great audience vehicle of being dubious of the TVA to being blown away by its power. Is this the greatest power in the universe? Quote unquote. I love Mobius' mm. role in this, uh, in this change, how someone other than Loki believed that he is not just meant for total death and destruction of worlds, but someone who doesn't enjoy hurting people. I think to, it takes away from Loki's arc. If another Loki was secretly trying to manipulate him, how do y'all feel about that? So like, I like kind of agree. I think at this point, if he is a Loki variant, um, he doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. Yeah. 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 I, that's where I'm with. That's yeah. where I'm leaning to. I don't think he's working against him. I think he's a true believer. He's doing what he thinks is right. The right thing, what he's been taught to do. And, uh, but he thinks he knows more than Loki, and he does. He knows a little bit more. He knows different things. But I think Loki's going to crack it open that, that this guy's a a variant of some kind. I think he's somebody. Put it that way. I think he's somebody. And I mean, and, I, and it is, like, it's devastating. To, like, we found out in this episode that Mobius definitely um, doesn't know everything because, you know, he says they were created to be in the TVA and we find out in this episode, if we believe Sylvie, which I do, um, that that's not the case. And so, you know, all of his proselytizing about, you know, the sacred timeline and, and, you know, the great, the glorious purpose and all this sort of stuff is, it's sad to know that, that he is being led on something. So I don't know. Um, Shruti also wrote this other thing that I thought was really interesting. Shruti, I know from another podcast and I know she works, don't know exactly what she does but i know she works somehow in in the film and television industry uh and so she wrote i'm very impressed by how this show has managed to have a ticking clock while not taking place in time oh that's at, great good at, observation <laughs> at work people are always talking about how that. scripts need to have a ticking clock to keep things interesting slash on a time crunch i feel like in this show the ticking clock is loki's threat of death it's difficult to see the threat of the multiverse as a ticking clock because the title of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness implies we'll get there. If the ticking clock is Loki's death, will you feel cheated if or when Loki survives the series? I know lots of people are fed up with the inconsequential deaths in the MCU, but this show is so fun and intense. It doesn't feel the same. If Loki comes out alive, it'll be like him winning Last Chance Kitchen and Top Chef. After going through all these challenges, he deserves to be back in the competition. Um, so I just thought that was really smart uh, storytelling observation of that idea of like, the ticking clock being will Loki survive? Will Mobius be able to keep him alive? And, and now we know that maybe it's not death, but a, a memory wipe that's on the horizon for him. So, ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, interesting. I like it. The other, um, Sarah wrote in this email about, um, she said in episode one, Owen, uh, mm-hmm. Owen Wilson slash Mobius says to Loki, Time passes differently here in the TVA. You'll catch up. And it really feels like the show takes a beat to note the comment. It's then so important that they they run it back in the previously on for episode two. Then on this week's episode three, the other shoe drops when Sylvie explains that the members of the TVA were not in fact created by the TVA, but one-time variants just like us. What if all this time you've been thinking of Mobius as a Loki when he is in fact our boy tried and true, ride or die, 2012, Tim Hiddlesworth, that's a shout out to Richard's mom. Uh, Loki. Anyway, that's my turn on the heavy keys. Keep keep on keeping on. Love the what show. What a great email. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> love the show and all of its uh, timelines. Um, I think that's spot on. I think that's right. And, and that keeps, that's in keeping with the name Mobius. Is, it's a loop. 
and could be could be um yeah i think that would be kind of cool is uh we discover it was loki all along loki can change his shape and appearance uh can loki it's like that old question can god make a rock so large that he he himself cannot lift it like it's what can can loki disguise himself (laughs) so well that even he doesn't recognize himself (laughs) maybe is he that powerful oh i like it yeah it's um it's interesting. I um, I don't know. I'm 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 way shakier on the Mobius is Loki train than I was before. Um, and I hear everyone's sort of arguments as to why it doesn't really work for them. I just can't get away from the idea that like Owen Wilson approached Tom Hiddleston to say, "What do you enjoy about playing Loki?" You know what I mean? Like that's yeah, just still interesting to me. But I'm 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 and, always ready and willing to be wrong. <laughs> and I will sound this note of caution. Yeah, is that I don't think Marvel ever goes for the big crazy theory. Like, yeah, we theorize a lot. You and I, we've done it for years on these movies. We watch the trailers and go, maybe it's going to be this. Maybe this is the twist. Maybe that's going to be the twist. And it all ends up fairly straightforward. Like sometimes there are little surprises here and mm-hmm. there, but for the most part. It is what it is. The story goes kind of where you might expect, which I think is ironic given the massive amounts of secrecy surrounding everything. Um, you know, it's 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 never like, oh wow, what a like what a curveball. You know, I guess I guess like Shield being evil that was a big surprise, but um, otherwise they don't tend to like. They, t- they don't tend to go down into the quantum realm of, of uh, geeky theories. <laughs> they tend to stay. It's true. I think I'm always off. looking for like a third twist and really there's just like one or two twists. And I'm yeah. always like, and then, you know, so if like the twist is and just. And then there's a big battle and then they battle it out. <laughs> I mean, Agatha all along was certainly like a twist to people. But then I was like, but then what if also, and they're like, no, it's just Agatha all along. That's our twist that we're presenting to you uh, in WandaVision. And so I- like, you know, what if the twist is just. Mobius is a variant from the, a nice man from the 90s who liked just skis who had his mind wiped. Like, that's can, enough of a twist. I think um, a rule of thumb is, like, can you explain the twist to your neighbor who doesn't watch these things in less than 30 seconds? And if you can't, it's probably not going to happen in the, fair. In the movie or TV show. I mean, so that brings me to my next uh, question, which is a, a, a grand theory that's going around. is, uh, And I had in my notes last week and I forgot to talk about it, which is, um, is does the TVA actually exist in the quantum realm? Um, this is a theory that's going around just because of this idea of time working differently in the TVA. Um, the quantum realm, of course, being this like prismatic space um, mm-hmm. that uh, you know exists in the Ant Man films. I mean, it exists everywhere, but is explored in the Ant Man films. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, like this idea of like time passing differently there uh is is a big is a big plot point of of ant-man 2 and uh there was this moment um that eagle eagle-eyed fans noticed and i think it's ant-man and the wasp but uh, maybe it's the first one where um no ant-man and the wasp where um where you see a little city inside of the quantum realm uh that is yet to pay off and we do know that ant-man 3 is called Quantumania, and we do know that Jeff Loveness, the guy who wrote Ant-Man 3 Quantumania, was in close contact with Michael Waldron, who wrote this. So, like, you know, 
are we in the quantum realm? Is that something I can explain to my neighbor? I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. But what, what do you think? Uh, yeah, quantum Andrew? realm. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's where you shrink so small that uh, past and pre- past, present, and future don't matter anymore. Time doesn't matter. Space doesn't matter because you're getting smaller and smaller. Where all of the rules of physics don't apply, and it's just sort of this stasis, right? It's like Brigadoon. I don't know. Time that was that thirty seconds. <laughs> like, like I think you can explain the quantum realm. It's just, it's just like, uh, it's a timeout zone, you know. So I think that, I think that could, that could, that could be. All right. Um, we got a bunch of emails about this idea of like, because a big question was like, how if if the TVA is so assiduously pruning these time branches, how do variants as as diverse as Hulk, Loki, or Sylvie exist? How do you get something so wildly different in a carefully pruned timeline? But um, something that that a bunch of people pointed out was that um, if you look closely at that sacred timeline, um, that sort of like glowing white light sacred timeline animation that they do, there's a bunch of threads there. It's not one line. It's sort of like a like a woven rope. Um, and so this idea that like there are branches that that can then sort of be woven back into the rope, and then there are branches that can never be reassimilated. And so like mm-hmm. the variants can exist because there are timelines that can exist uh, peaceably, sort of within the sacred timeline, but um, the branches, the the wild branches, are the problem. Now you might say that a Hulk Loki <laughs> feels like it should be a wild branch. That might have been pruned earlier, but um, but I don't know. I think that's that's an explanation for why there can be variants at all. You know? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, look, I, I again, not to take something serious and apply it to a comic book story, but I mean, look at the pandemic, right? Like at the start of that, it was like, okay, can we like think of that as pruning the timeline? Can we control this? Okay, there are outbreaks in Seattle and. Uh, and in California and in New York and on a cruise ship, like, can we control that? And things get loose. Like, it's, you know, it's like the um, the Yates poem. Like, things fall apart. The center doesn't hold. So, you know, things are always escaping and variants are getting out there. I, I, I'm willing to go with time is hard to control and hard to prune back. And sometimes elements of it escape and get into the uh, the main timeline and are on the run. I have a question for you. All right. <laughs> it's about Miss Minutes. Uh, Tara mm-hmm. Strong gave an interview to THR that has a lot of people sort of twisted up in knots. Uh, and, like, honestly, what she said was kind of innocuous, but it's the kind of thing that I think is too tempting for people to to let lay. So what she said is, I can cryptically tease that you'll see her again. There's much more to be revealed, and it's fun to watch that unfold. The beautiful thing about this character is you don't really know who she is, where she's from, what her origin story is, how sentient she is, if she has a horse in this race at all, and what her intentions are, if any. Uh, oh, Miss Minutes is the villain of this movie. I mean, right? maybe. That's what it's going to be. They're going to get up there, and it's going to be Miss Minutes. It's like this artificial intelligence. It's like Jarvis becoming the Vision. Paul Bettany. Just, what hero does Tara, or villain does Tara Strong look like, like that we could cast? <laughs> I mean, can she just be Mephisto? I don't know, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I like, you know, please send us your crackpot Miss Minix 
theories. I'm I'm ready for them. Um, yeah. So I I don't know. I I don't I don't I think that's just an actress trying to be uh contractually vague uh as she can be but um i understand why people would want to make a meal of that um yeah but uh, here's the other thing i will add to that is you could have miss minutes as a little real like like what's his name mr dna or whatever from jurassic (laughs) park (laughs) but like there was no need to make her sentient semi-sentient outside of that real and have her hopping around and getting chased by Loki yeah. and, and like continuing to reappear. Like that's a great device as it is in Jurassic Park for like, again, explaining it in simple terms to people who might not know so that you can move on to the dinosaur eating. Um, dinosaurs eating other people, not eating the dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess that happens too, but it's other dinosaurs <laughs> doing it. So uh, uh off on a tangent here trim the timeline all right back to <laughs> back to square one there was no need to have her hopping around and and yet they did that and so that tells me that miss minutes is gonna is gonna be on the loose there's something feral about miss minutes keep your eye on all right um i love that okay um cat rudin asked who what the postman reference was when uh when Sylvie said that she had she had a correspondence with the postman, various apocalypses. Uh, there's two options as far as I can see. Number one, Kevin Costner. This is a re- Kevin Costner. Well, number one, this is a reference to uh, this is how you lose the time war, the book that we talked about last week uh-huh. with our with our guest uh, person. Uh, number two, Kevin Costner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you think this is a postman reference? Uh, Kevin Costner, the postman reference. Uh, Anthony Is there anybody who worked on those movies that like, <laughs> would, or that movie that would have been associated with this? <laughs> I don't know. He um, was in the apocalypse, you know. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So maybe, maybe, maybe Sylvia's. I thought she was kidding, but then she followed it up with like just something to keep me going or whatever, and I was like, oh, maybe she's serious. Anyway, um, you know, I mean, that is a different timeline because Tom Petty lives to become the leader of a survivor camp and. <sighs> Unfortunately, oh my God, he's... my kingdom for a Tom Petty variant. Um, remember, do you remember in the postman when he's like, "Oh my God!" Like it's Tom Petty. He shows up as like the leader of this camp, and you'd think, like I remember watching that and thinking, "Oh, uh, oh, it's cool." Tom Petty's acting, and then the postman looks at him and is like, "Aren't you Tom?" Petty? <laughs> he say something like, "Aren't you Tom Petty?" Amazing. <laughs> or does he say something like, "You're you're a famous rock musician or something?" Oh no, you're the famous one. Tom Petty says back to the postman. It was such a bizarre. That was such a bizarre exchange. We um, don't. We don't recommend the postman as as bonus watching for understanding yeah. Loki. Probably. Um. All right. Now. Okay. I. I feel like we must have talked about this in the past, but I can't remember. Were you raised in any kind of uh, religious faith, Anthony Presnikin? Yeah, Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic. Great. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Knew you were the person to talk to about this. Um. I. Um, was raised uh, as an atheist. Um, but I have read the Bible and some accompanying matter. And let us let's get a little religious right now, shall we? Right. Um, Wumi Masaku, who is our guest this week, was talking about how uh, it's no it's no coincidence that a lot of these theological terms are being thrown around in terms of the sacred timeline stuff like that. She said that on the set they were talking about these idea of like God and free will and determinism and all this sort of stuff like that that 
these were the big ideas that Loki was striving to meet. Um, so it's not an overreach to talk about this. And in fact, we got a couple emails specifically about this. Um, so I'm going to read, I'm going to abbreviate this one we got from court uh, because it's a, it's a little long, but uh, court wrote, I spent a lot of time in quarantine reading, studying Genesis one and two from the Torah slash Bible. There's some huge noteworthy and key themes of gardening sacred space in Genesis one and two. Um, and in Loki slash the TVA. Um, the idea of ordering chaos is is sort of the the the, the beginning of Genesis, right? Um, the earth was without form and void and 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 God um made something of it. And that's sort of the idea of like creating mm-hmm. the sacred timeline out of out of chaos. Number two, gardening. Um in Genesis one, humans are created to co-rule with God. Their given work involves naming slash taking care of animals, gardening, and multiplying. This is all done in a garden. Human sacred God-given work is essentially gardening and caretaking of the earth. It's interesting that the TVA sacred timeline uses gardening language like branches and pruning in regards to their works of keeping the sacred order. Number three, Lady Loki and Chaos. Of course, humans fall in Genesis three. Fall is a problematic term, but it's another. But that's another email. And now we see Lady Loki essentially bombing the garden. This seems to be an effort to have the garden grow wild and out of control. Lots of wild branches seem to be occurring, too many to be pruned. Thorns and weeds and thistles are taking over the garden. Chaos is re-entering or growing beyond the garden walls. Um, number four, to what end? A reordering chaos? Maybe, but why? Surely not chaos for chaos's sake, though. I don't know what the ultimate end, uh, to what ultimate end, and look forward to your theorizing. One thought, perhaps the TVA had become too controlling and Lady Loki isn't so much an agent of chaos as an agent of freedom. Thus, the tension for humans in general in between fascistic control and total chaos is some sweet spot freedom. We are always navigating that tension of order and chaos in our lives. To sum up, what I want to offer here is the big themes of sacred space slash time, maintaining the garden's branches through pruning, the tension of order and chaos and other imagery and themes from Loki lay well on top of Genesis 1, 2, 3. Rereading them rings a lot of bells throughout the first two episodes of Loki. Thanks again for your work, blah, blah. Um, so something that that Court's email made me think of is like, what if we're meant to think of of Sylvie not as like a fallen Adam or Eve, but as like Lucifer Morningstar, sort of like that kind of fall. And and Lucifer, oh. of course, in, in many um stories is is you know that's the devil but in some tellings like the lucifer morning star of it all is like is about freedom and free will and yeah yeah, resistance so like what 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 sort of thoughts is this inspiring in you well it's definitely taking me back to 10th grade religion (laughs) class Uh um no i i look there's a lot of conflicting stuff in the bible but i do think there's a lot of really interesting philosophy and thinking uh also a lot that's super outdated but uh you know it's one of those ancient texts that was early human beings trying to grapple with big unknowable questions and so you know i think metaphor becomes a way of understanding the world and so this notion of a garden growing out of control and how much do you want to (laughs) how much do you want to rain it in it's funny because uh i have a garden like during pandemic i i dug out like the this bad clay earth and i put in like really rich soil and my garden last year got really wild and it was hard to find the tomatoes and stuff so this year i put uh columns of like like wire columns 
I took like a fence and cut it up and made these sort of cylinders out of wire fence so that my tomatoes would grow up and be nice and rigid. And my wife came outside while I was doing this and I was like, do I have like the world's most uptight garden? <laughs> like it's just, it's not really it's like everything's like caged in. Right. And, uh, uh, I, that's why I was laughing because I think there is something to be said about being loose and free and improv and rolling with things in life. And that's free will, right? But you also do need an, or an element of control or else things fall completely out of line. So I guess this chaos versus the ultra control of the TVA would be in line with that. Like, do they have the world's most uptight timeline, like where they're just trimming back everything that that's slightly interesting or different in order of maintaining some kind of uh, uh, just uh, what's the word, uh, like a homogenized mm. telling of history. Uh, I mean, I still I still think there's some force. A, a non-benevolent force who is invested in some sort of outcome. And that's what the timeline is about. Yeah. Um, like, it's like over-policing, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's like defund the TVA. Yeah, know? definitely defund the TVA. But like this idea of the, the religious imagery is so interesting to me because like you think of like, I don't know, the, the like <laughs> of Sylvia walking right up to those like, they're not quite pearly gates, they're golden uh, elevator doors, but like, and then she and Loki literally fall like oh, down yeah. into like this hellish, you know, planet gate that's just being bombed by fire. And then at one point in the episode, the, that woman who blasts them with a the gun calls them devils, right? They've got these horns. Yeah. Like, it's oh. just sort of this like really interesting. Um, like, I, I think, I think they're trying for something very, Miltonian almost with what they're showing us here. Um and and we're mostly on Sylvie's side, except she keeps killing these TVA agents where if they're just brainwashed variants, I feel weird about that. But um but this idea of like God is in his tower. But that's also cult like, yeah. right? Like the, like a religious cult where everybody just kind of believes something because that's what they've been made mm -hmm. to made to think. You yeah. Know? Trevor also wrote in this, this, uh, Trevor's also wrote in about sort of some of the Christian themes that he saw here. Um, uh, one of the primary Christian stances on determinism and free will hinges on the idea that God is outside of time. In a nutshell, the reality in which we live is one of the vast variety of options that exist. God outside of time could view all the various timelines in their entirety, you know, every action that will be made out of free will, and ultimately a certain path is determined. Because God is not directing the causes and effects of actions on a granular level, free will is alive and well. The TVA and the timekeepers effectively operate in the same way, selecting a sacred timeline that includes acts of free will while being outside of time. I have a feeling the show may either seek to make the same argument or challenge it. The interesting parallel and differences between the three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the three timekeepers. In the Christian tradition, the three serve and complement each other. Timekeepers, however, come from a relationship of warring against each other, effectively creating a flawed picture of the Christian Godhead. The determinism free will argument alone is just one of the examples of how the TVA's religious overtones work so well. I think the fact that a superhero show uh, is confronting audiences with these type of topics speaks to the incredible job the writers have done. Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm going to be chewing over this idea of like who I would cast and what role Father, Son, Holy Ghost, um, older Loki, younger Loki. 
Sylvie, who's who's the Jesus, who's the Judas, like I don't know, like like I said, I'm I'm an atheist, but this is like one of our biggest stories uh in our history and it's always compelling to me as someone who was brought up through uh an English major program to think about laying those themes over uh, a piece of work. So um yeah, from from a storytelling perspective it's interesting to me and I I imagine it might be interesting for other people um on a more spiritual level as well. Which is the Humphrey Bogart movie where it ends with was it Lauren Bacall or another femme fatale who who's like I'm taking the elevator down? Are you getting in? He's like, no, I'm taking the stairs. And it's like meant to imply, I think, is it the Maltese Falcon? Uh, it's meant to imply that like she's done something terrible and she's going to hell faster, and mm. he's getting there too, but he's just going to take the longer route. <laughs> like they're both they've both done things that are wrong and they're not proud of, but like, but but he's just. He's just a little more hesitant. And I, I love that idea of like things down below, things up above, like using that uh, as symbolism, you know, the volcanic hellishness in the center of the earth and the cloud filled heavens above, uh, you know, being a symbol for uh, the spectrum between right and wrong. Uh, so I love what you've conjured with this golden elevator and the opening of the door in the floor that plunges them into this you know, hellscape that's about to be destroyed by a moon. I like, I think that religious imagery all tracks. And I think and I just it's think, being like, Sylvia with her little, with her little horns where one of the horns is broken. It's just so the, like, you I, know? I was completely sold when you mentioned that she calls them devils because I think, Oh, this is like the future. And like, this is a sci-fi world. Like invoking of devils in an alien world feels very, it did feel very religious and superstitious to me. And so, I do think this notion of disruption and chaos being demonic, um, that's uh, that's also, uh, if you just look at the politics of religion, anything that uh, stepped outside of uh, the norm, such as the powers that be saw it, was considered awful and terrible. So, you know, and it must be controlled and stamped out. So I think you're onto something. And I, I mean, like, I, I can't help but go back to that stained glass window in the first episode, right? Where, right. you know, the kid points to the devil figure and, and Mobius says, like, don't worry, that devil's afraid of us. I don't know. It's just sort of interesting, this idea. And, and this idea that, like, all these angels, if you want to think of them that way, all these angels in the TVA are working for an authority that they don't know the truth about. Oh, it's interesting. It's interesting to me. So, um, yeah, uh, please send us your thoughts and feelings to watching pot at gmail.com uh and and hopefully i didn't say anything that felt like a blasphemous anyone i don't mean to be disrespectful i just i find these kinds of conversations really interesting um and uh yeah we'll keep our eye on these devils <laughs> who's gonna rescue them from hell uh at the beginning of of next week anthony bresdekin until then uh you know what what good work do you have coming up on VF.com that people might want to oh, check lots out? lots of good stuff. Check in. We're doing a lot of uh, Emmys coverage of TV from the past year, so got that. And uh, I'll be quick. I'll, after this podcast, I'll be Googling uh, to, to figure out which movie I was referencing. I think it was The Maltese Falcon, and that would have been Mary Astor. Uh, but uh, the stairs and the elevator, uh, What what is it? I'll figure it out. <laughs> That's what I'm going to be doing. Um, I'll be on VanityFair.com as well. Uh, you can also you can find both of us talking about the film on the waterfront on Little Gold Men this week. 
Um, thank you, Anthony, for guesting on that podcast with us. Oh, that was fun, yeah. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find Richard on Twitter at Rylaws. And uh, we'll be back next week. We've got the great Kate Heron, series director, as a guest next week. So we'll be back with that interview and more on Still Watching Loki. Bye. Bye. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now 